She's arguably the most powerful person in pop culture, but Taylor Swift's story is littered with highs, lows, industry friends, and downright enemies. So let's retrace it all. Welcome to Scandal from Shameless Podcast, the stories of the biggest celebrity controversies revisited. I'm very excited to be here today. Oh my goodness. I cannot wait for this one. I know we're about to talk about it all, Zara, but researching this scandal series with our researcher, Justine Landis-Hanley, was perhaps my favourite scandal story to research. Yeah, it's been one of the great joys of my last few months being able to have our heads in this Mm. because it feels like such a silly thing to call work because I would do it if I wasn't getting paid for it. It is such... (laughs) a good story, the story of Taylor Swift. I know that so many of the people listening to this today will be big Taylor Swift fans. And as two big Taylor Swift fans sitting here, there's still so much that I had forgotten or details that I just completely missed over the years because she has had such a glittery, but also... um, Gritty in some ways. Very gritty career. Yeah, absolutely. We know that all of you have been absolutely demanding this one as well, particularly after the re-release of Red back in November. You guys have been at us and at us to bring this out and it has been a joy to do so far. From the top, we will not be able to cover every little crevice of Taylor Swift's life. It is a very storied, very colourful life. We know that some massive Swifties will be listening and they want to hear it all. It's going to be impossible to jam 30-something years into three episodes. Especially 30 Taylor Swift years. It is absolutely from the top, as Mish said. We we looked at it all, all of the research we had, and we thought we need this to be able to fit in about three episodes. So with that (laughs) came a lot of strategy decisions to be like, what are we including? What are we keeping out? So we have just chosen to tell the stories that we care about. That said, I promise you, my goodness, we cover a lot. Everything (laughs) from Kanye to Heartbreak. To the Taylor Swift is over party, of course, then Scooter Braun. There is so much stuff to come. But for now, Michelle, we are heading all the way back, of course, to 1989. 1989, let's do it. All right, Zara, Taylor Ellison Swift was born in 1989 in Pennsylvania. She has a younger brother named Austin, according to Rolling Stone, and I quote, her parents intentionally raised their kids in the country on a Christmas tree farm with a grape arbor and seven horses in eastern Pennsylvania while Taylor's father commuted to work. Yeah, so her mum, Andrea, worked in finance before becoming a stay-at-home mum and her dad, Scott, who is, by the way, a descendant of three generations of bank presidents, was a stockbroker for Merrill Lynch. Now, he actually bought that iconic Christmas tree farm from a client. And as a result of seeing her dad work in finance, when Taylor Swift was about eight, there are many news reports say that she was telling people then that she wanted to become a financial advisor. bit different to what she's doing now. By the age of 11, that had changed though. Within those three years, Taylor Swift decided she wanted to become a songwriter. She grew up absolutely obsessed with the likes of Shania Twain and the Dixie Chicks. Music also happened to run in her family. So her grandmother was actually a professional opera singer who performed around the world. How cool is that? So Taylor's mum actually started driving her around on weekends to sing at karaoke competitions. She would watch documentaries of country musicians like Faith Hill, 
all the Dixie Chicks and kept hearing that they had to go to Nashville to get their break. Yeah. So in 2001, she convinced her mother to take her to Nashville. Very impressive. (laughs) She later told Entertainment Tonight, I took my demo CDs of karaoke songs where I sound like a chipmunk. It's pretty awesome. And my mum waited in the car with my little brother while I knocked on doors up and down Music Row. I would say, hi, I'm Taylor. I'm 11. I want a record deal. Call me. They didn't. I love this part of her story. Weird tangent, but it reminds me a lot of Margot Robbie. For listeners who are unaware of Margot's story, she did the same thing. She would cold call television producers and say, my name's Margot Robbie, give me a gig on your TV show. And that's how she kind of got her big break. I think you have to have that tenacity to get through. Well, these are incredibly competitive industries that we're talking about, Mm. particularly the music industry. So it is, I mean, we know that Taylor Swift has drive because look at where she is today and look at how she puts out work. But it's really interesting to see that it was there from the age of 10 or 11. Yeah. Luckily as well, she had parents who really tried to foster that passion within her. Her mum told Entertainment Tonight that Taylor and I quote, came back from that trip to Nashville and realized she needed to be different. And part of that would be to learn guitar. Now, she had previously tried picking up an acoustic guitar, but hadn't shown much interest in it. After Nashville, she realized that singing alone wasn't going to cut it. She needed to have something else in her kind of arsenal. Yeah. So her mum told Entertainment Tonight this as well. Now at 12, she saw a 12 string guitar and thought it was the coolest thing. And of course, we immediately said, oh no, absolutely not. Your fingers are too small, not till you're much older, will you be able to play a 12-string guitar? Well, that was all it took. Don't say never or can't do to Taylor. She started playing at four hours a day, six on the weekends. Now, I don't know if people know much about guitars, but when I was younger, I tried to learn a bloody six-string guitar and struggle. Yeah. My dad was a big big guitar player at home, tried to teach us, and I found it hard. 12-string is ridiculous. Mate, screw guitars. I found the recorder hard. I was asked by my music teacher in year six to not play at our music recital because I was going to make everyone sound worse. (laughs) (laughs) That did not happen to Taylor Swift and her 12-string guitar. Around this same time, Taylor Swift began writing her own songs. She later told The New Yorker that she couldn't wait to get home from school and write every day. She admitted to The New Yorker that she was bullied quite quite badly in middle school. She was also a goody two-shoes that didn't quite fit in. She gave the publication an example of a sleepover where all of her friends were kind of plotting how they were going to sneak over to a guy's house because he had beer. Taylor Swift completely panicked and wanted to call her mum. She said, my whole life, I've never felt comfortable just being edgy like that. Yeah. And this is echoed in every profile we read in the first sort of five, first five years of her career, at least. She very much has consistently pushed this sort of goody two-shoes, and I have that in inverted commas, narrative being like, I've never been able to break rules. I've never been able to sort of step outside the lines of maybe my own perception of what it Mm. means to be good. According to Rolling Stone in high school, Taylor had a 4.0 average, which is, yes, a very American thing to say, but I feel like the movies will tell me that is a good average. (laughs) When she was homeschooled during both her junior and senior years, she finished both years of coursework in 12 months. Yeah, she said that middle school actually really fueled her passion to pursue a career in music as well. She said, a lot of people ask me, how did you have the courage to walk up to record labels when you were 12 or 13 and jump right into the music industry? It's because I knew I could never 
never feel the kind of rejection that I felt in middle school. Because in the music industry, if they're going to say no to you, at least they're being polite about it. Yeah. So uh, while her social life perhaps wasn't going from strength to strength when she was at school, her career was really starting to. She played at a Nashville industry showcase at the age of 13 years old. And at that point, was offered a development deal by RCA Records, which is a label that's owned by Sony. Now, one entertainment lawyer has described this development deal as something that basically you can liken it to a promise ring, Mm. I guess, of the music industry. It's a sort of commitment but not one taken seriously by anyone outside the relationship. It's like we see something in you, therefore we're going to see how we go. Yeah, sorry to bring up the David and Victoria Beckham scandal episode but kind of like when David was put into that training academy when he was only a teenager as well. Oh, yeah. You were looking at me and be like, where is this going? I had no idea. Yeah, it's like a training academy. You're absolutely right. The following year after she got the promise ring from the music Music industry. Taylor's dad transferred his job to Nashville so they could actually have a base in the home of country music. When that RCA deal came up for renewal, though, after 12 months, Taylor decided to opt out. According to Entertainment Tonight, she was worried that she would have to record songs written by other people. She only wanted to record material that she had had a hand in writing. Yeah, a really interesting tidbit, that one. So Taylor did continue, though, to gain recognition for her work. Her music was actually covered in Vanity Fair at this point and Good Morning America. She's 13. Followed her around (laughs) town while she rehearsed and performed at the Bluebird Cafe. She's known, I think, that she was going to be famous from the age of 13. You do not have yeah. GMA following you around if you're no good. She was also featured in Abercrombie and Fitch's Rising Stars national ad campaign and her song The Outside featured on Maybelline's Chicks with Attitude compilation CD. <laughs> what, what is that? <laughs> Maybelline's compilation CD. Some good promo that they're I getting, that. what, 15, 16 years later. Breaking into country music was always going to be tough, but back in 2004, it had not been done by many teenage girls at all. Taylor recalled to The New Yorker years later, I remember auditioning for record labels and having them tell me, well, the country radio demographic is the 35-year-old female housewife. Give us a song that translates to 35-year-old females and we'll talk. But Taylor actually stuck to her instincts and, as we know now, tapped into an audience that country music had largely ignored for a pretty long time and that was teenage girls, the kind of long-time forgotten demographic, it seems, teenage girls. In 2004, at the age of 14, she became the youngest person to sign a publishing deal with Sony. As part of Taylor's publishing deal, right, she was matched with professional songwriters. So her mum would set up these writing sessions and drive her there. And every day after school, she would head off to one of Nashville's studios for writing appointments. Mm. She said, I knew every writer I wrote with was pretty much going to think, I'm going to write a song for a 14-year-old today, she told the New York Times. So I would come into each meeting with five or ten ideas that were solid. I wanted them to look at me as a person they were writing with, not a little kid. Yeah, in 2005, she then signed a record deal with Big Machine Records. Now, this is going to become a very important storyline in a couple of episodes' time. A recording deal is where the record label actually owns the song recording, which is called The Master. So, Big Machine Records had just been founded by a music industry executive called Scott Borchetta. Now, he had a reputation of being, and I quote, one of the best radio promotion guys in the business. 
Taylor Swift, a very young Taylor Swift, was going to be his first ever client at Big Machine. Good one too. I did not realise that this was such a new company when she joined on. Like they were all just at a very embryonic stage of this like music rocket ship. Yeah, and I think naturally we are going to talk a lot about this in the next few episodes, but one thing that became very clear to us knowing now that she was their first ever client is, okay, wow, like Taylor Swift really built that company. Yeah, yeah. But as I said, we will get to all of that in a second. (laughs) Now, let's talk about Taylor Swift's debut album. In 2006, at the age of 16, she released her debut album, Taylor Swift. Now, Taylor and Scott were really strategic in the launch. Borchetta told the New York Times in 2008, we felt it wasn't likely that country radio would embrace it unless we had a story. So basically what they did was they made a bunch of biographical short clips to air on the Great American Country Cable Network. Taylor's first single was a song called Tim McGraw and it was all about how she and a guy fell in love and they both liked the same song by one of the world's most famous country singers. Scott Borchetta said this was very strategic as well. We put that out deliberately so people would ask, who's this new artist with a song called Tim McGraw? He likened the response to that decision as, and I quote, a grenade in a still pond. It makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Like Mm. it's an incredibly intriguing title for a song. Well, if someone called a song Taylor Swift today, I'd be be super. It feels very meta, doesn't it? From that moment Tim McGraw came out, Taylor began to amass a huge audience of teen girls exactly as she was trying to. The album sold a, quote, modest... (laughs) 39,000 copies in its first week. But as Taylor gained attention and released more singles like Teardrops on My Guitar, the album just kept selling. And by 2007, she won the Country Music Association's Horizon Award for Best New Artist. Teardrops on My Guitar was how I found Taylor Swift. Wow. I had that CD. I remember my cousin showed it to me on like old school CD players in her bedroom. And we all fell in love with Taylor Swift in that moment. I wish I remembered. I wish I remembered when I started to listen to her, but I feel like she's just like always been around. <laughs> always been in your life, helping she, you through heartbreak. Yeah, genuinely. <laughs> so before we move on, we need to take a moment to acknowledge the role that Taylor's upbringing played in her success. There have been plenty of whispers about this over the years, about how privileged Taylor Swift is, about maybe the legs up that she got in life. So let's talk about them. First of all, there's no doubt that Taylor Swift is immeasurably talented and a huge ingredient in her success has been the fact that she's just destined for stardom. Yeah, well, she can write and she can sing and she's smart when it comes to marketing. So those three things have been crucial. Mm, But the New Yorker has put it really well in the past. In 2011, when they wrote about Taylor's story, they remarked, it is often framed as an underdog saga, the triumph of a nice girl over mean ones and of teenage pluckiness over industry gatekeepers. It's a legend that de-emphasised the role of adults. Yeah, so Taylor has also kind of tried to paint herself over the years as someone who came from relatively humble beginnings. Even this year on her re-released version of Red, she included a new song called I Bet You Think About Me, which I know that everybody is obsessed with already. (laughs) I just wanted to sing it. I'm like, don't do that. Yeah, do not do that. (laughs) In the song, she sings about an ex and wrote in that song, you grew up in a silver spoon gated community, glamorous, shiny, bright Beverly Hills. I was raised on a farm. No, it wasn't a mansion, just a living room dancing and kitchen table bills. But 
like we said, we know that Taylor Swift's parents weren't farmers. They worked in finance. We know that her family were financially secure enough to uproot to Nashville so that they could pursue her dreams. And we also know that Taylor's dad actually invested in Big Machine Records, the label that signed Taylor. He bought a 3% share in that label, which it's estimated that he purchased it for around 120 k Yeah, it doesn't line up with kitchen table bills. She also came from the long, long line of bank presidents. Yeah. Like, I don't know why there's this real desire to pretend that she doesn't come from generational wealth when she does. Uh, Maybe it's to appear more relatable to her fans, but I think that is really interesting to have on the record that she does come from that kind of money. Scott Borchetta has made it clear that money and affluence is not what made Taylor a star, particularly when it comes to her dad owning part of Big Machine Records. He told Rolling Stone that Scott Swift owns 3% of Big Machine, but I hear people go, oh well, he funded the whole deal and that's why Taylor's number one. It's like, please people. Everyone wants to say, well, there's a reason. Yeah, there is a reason because she's great. That's the reason. We also need to acknowledge that sort of widely held rumour that Taylor's parents purchased thousands of copies of her debut album to help it climb the charts. We actually, in our research, haven't been able to find anything to prove that claim. From what we can gather, though, we will say it doesn't feel or sound unusual for artists or labels to buy lots of their own albums for this purpose. Mm. For example, in 2020, Selena Gomez was criticised for saying that she was buying her own album. In one video she posted on Instagram, she said that she was going with her friends to buy, and I quote, as many albums as possible. In other videos, she asked fans to buy and stream her album saying, it's not about numbers for me, but I would love the most important album I've ever released to become number one. Yeah. And this is all to say that this is happening years later. It's kind of a very tried and tested formula for success in the industry. Justin Bieber, someone who rose to fame at a similar time to Taylor Swift, has admitted to the same thing. In 2020, he was still asking fans to help him boost his figures for the single Yummy. He shared a series of slides that included how to get Yummy to number one. <laughs> this was so embarrassing. It I remember this. It was really embarrassing. He instructed people to, and I quote, create a Spotify playlist with Yummy on repeat and stream it. Don't mute it. Play it on a low volume. Let it play while you sleep. He then suggested that anyone listening from outside the US should pay for a VPN account and set that account so it kind of like artificially change the location of their device, change it to the US to help his American streaming figures. So <laughs> I forgot about that story. It is so good. Which is all just to say we have no idea if Taylor's parents bought some of her albums. As we said, we couldn't find anything to prove it. It is also not to say that if that did happen, we would excuse it. It's just that... It seems to be quite standard practice in the music industry, whether you find that right or wrong. It's kind of the world we live in. So, I, yeah. like, yes, it's important to talk about it. And, yes, if it happened, that is something interesting that I raise my eyebrow at. But it doesn't discredit anything either. Yeah, well, she'd hardly be the first person to have ever done it. Now, we are going to get into Fearless and Joe Jonas and kind of the first time that we learn that Taylor starts writing songs about the people who break her heart. But first, a word from today's sponsor. All 
All right, Zara, it is time to talk about Mr. Joe Jonas. So at the age of 18, Taylor Swift started dating the most high-profile Jonas brother, I would say. (laughs) This was her first official relationship, it seemed, or appeared to the public eye with another teen celebrity. So she appeared at a Jonas Brothers concert in July 2008. People magazine wrote in September that year that they were dating. Yeah, so the relationship didn't last long as we know. According to tabloids, Taylor and Joe dated for about three months. People magazine reported that they broke up in October and by November he had moved on with the actress Camilla Bell who did star in the Jonas Brothers music video Love Bug. Mm, Taylor famously revealed to Alan in November that Joe had broken up with her via voicemail. She dropped into the interview this line. It's like when I find that person that that is is right for me and is he'll be wonderful. And when I look at that person, I'm not even going to be able to remember the boy who broke up with me over the phone in 25 seconds when I was 18. I didn't realize she gave quotes so publicly about that breakup so soon after that breakup. She also did them in quite a good way, I think. I yeah. think well, re-watching this interview, it kind of sparks that teenage annoyance in me that someone dared to break her heart. I remember seeing this at the time and being enraged that Joe Jonas broke up with Taylor Swift on a 25-second phone call. And truthfully, it marked the beginning of a process where Taylor would make lemonade out of lemons yeah. and coincide talking about her heartbreak with the release of her albums. So the same day she went on Ellen, which was November 11, 2008, Taylor released her second studio album, Fearless. This was the album that brought us hits like Love Story, White Horse and You Belong With Me. Also, reportedly, she wrote Forever and Always about Joe, which was quick. When I was sitting there thinking about this, because all the reports at the time and all the reports now are that Forever and Always was written about Joe Jonas. This album came out in mid-November. She broke up with Joe Jonas in October. She would have to have written, recorded, edited, (laughs) snuck it onto the album within a month. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm saying she was either so heartbroken that she was desperate to get this track on there Mm. or it's been a really easy thing for them to sell. What do you think? Well, Stevie Nicks wrote Dreams in 10 Minutes. Maybe Taylor Swift wrote Forever and Always in a similar time frame. It is fast, but I don't think it's impossible. I agree with that. Yeah. So this album was celebrated by some critics. For example, the Boston Globe praised Taylor's ability to dissect youth with such honesty. They wrote that the quality separates her from the pack of teenage starlets who rely on big name producers, songwriters, and Disney shows for a music career. The reviewer also added that Taylor knows how to write a hit and noted songs like 15 and The Best Day as the standout songs. The praise wasn't universal though I'm sure as you can imagine when any 18 year old woman releases an album of which she had largely written Guardian critic Alexis Petridis couldn't understand why American reviewers were so wrapped up with the album giving it only three stars he criticized Taylor's tendency to use the same images over and over again adding that she spends so much time kissing in the rain (laughs) that it seems a miracle she hasn't developed trench foot he did praise her ability to write about teenage life but said that the record does something bland and uninventive but does it incredibly well. He was also nearly 40 years old and is a white guy, so perhaps he was not the intended audience for this album. Yeah, well, like him discarding of Taylor Swift's problems as bland and kind of boring 
screams to just a generational divide. I don't expect 40-year-old men to find the problems of teenage girls interesting because I, as a teenage girl, couldn't give a single fuck about the problems of 40-year-old men. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Regardless of what the press thought, though, the fans loved it, which was the most important thing. The album spent 11 non-consecutive weeks at the top of the US Billboard 200 chart. It sold 12 million copies worldwide, and to this day, it was one of the best-selling albums of the 21st century. So... There you go, Alexis Petridis. (laughs) Taylor was very, very smart, very strategic when it came to getting this album in people's ears. She did things that other country musicians weren't doing to try and connect with her fans. For example, she was using social media to build an online following to connect with her existing supporters and find new ones. Now, we need to remember this is at a time when social media platforms are fresh. Facebook was created in 2004. YouTube was created in 2005. And yet she jumped on those juggernauts very, very quickly. Yeah, this is the MySpace era. In fact, in a profile written by the New York Times that year in 2008, a journalist observed how great Taylor was at harnessing social media. The piece was titled, My Music, My Space, My Life. The piece reads... She has aggressively used online social networks to stay connected with her young audience in a way that, while typical for rock and hip-hop artists, is proving to be revolutionary in country music. As she vigilantly narrates her own story and erases barriers between her and her fans, she is helping country music reach a new audience. Mm, In that same piece, country singer Kelly Pickler remarked, Taylor's a very competitive person and she's always got her game face on. And she's a really smart businesswoman, smarter than a lot of 40 year olds that I know. I love that quote. She also had built a reputation as someone who cared more about her fans than the average musician. After shows, she would seek her fans out, not just the ones that paid for VIP tickets, but she wanted to make sure as many fans as she could knew that she appreciated their presence. And that is something that she's carried through her career, Mm. not just making sure her fans feel appreciated, but they are the forefront of everything that she does. And it's almost like there is no barrier between her and her fans. She is Mm. almost consumed by it. I can't think of another celebrity who has a stronger connection with her audience. Like she has an unwavering connection to her fans. This worked exceptionally well. Taylor's upbeat songs, marketing strategies and that dedication to fostering a deep connection with her followers saw her music not just get played on country radio but also pop stations and MTV. She actually hosted MTV's VMA's pre-show in 2008 Now, this was a country star who was going mainstream. She was the best-selling artist of 2008. Yeah, and that's not to say that other country musicians haven't been hugely successful. I mean, we know the Chicks, formerly known as the Dixie Chicks. We know Carrie Underwood, for example. Both of those acts have been supremely successful. But as the New York Times put it really well, Taylor proved there's no reason a country singer can't be a pop star too. Mm. In March 2009, so after she had had all this success in 2008, a 19-year-old Taylor Swift sat down to be interviewed by Rolling Stone. The magazine called her Little Miss Perfect and said that at 19, she had never had a drop of alcohol. 
She explained, I have no interest in drinking. I always want to be responsible for the things I say and do. And I would have a problem lying to my parents about that. Yeah, so journalist Vanessa Gregoriadis observes, Swift seems to have three gears. Giggly and dorky, worrying about boys and pouring that emotion into song, and insanely driven, hyper-self-controlled perfectionism. Mm. I think it's very interesting that even when we go back and read profiles of Taylor of this time, one consistent thread is of this real competitiveness, as you noted before, and also this huge drive to be perfect to be in perfect. every part of her life. She went on to write, she is constantly worried about saying something that could be construed as offensive to her fans and even swats away a question about her political preferences before conceding that she supports the president. Incredible sense of foreboding about this quote, isn't there? That in 2009, when I would argue the world was nowhere near as divisive as it was about to become maybe six, seven years later, Mm. that she still didn't even feel like she could put her hand up and say, yeah, I support Barack Obama. Yeah. Now, we've got to say, we know we keep quoting this Rolling Stone piece, but it is so interesting to go back and read it. Because Taylor Swift's maturity was also called into question by Vanessa Gregoriadis. She wrote, in a way, Swift's emotional state seems to be stuck at the time when she left school. Later on in the piece, Gregoriadis wrote, Oh my God, Taylor giggles. For love story, the stage is going to become a church and I'm going to get into a white dress. She bites her lip. There's so many cool sets, she says later. We're going to have a giant castle. Yeah, she's 19 at this point. So Mm. these quotes do come across, I think, as someone who sounds maybe three to four years younger than that. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, I do. I think it's really interesting because we know that Taylor was kind of taken out of school and was living a very adult life very, very early. And in some ways you could think, well, maybe you grow up too fast. Maybe a 19-year-old starts to speak like a 25-year-old. But Taylor's parents were always with her. She was so, so close to her parents. She is still to this day. But during this time, it was almost like she lived a more childlike existence because she was constantly around her own guardians. Yeah, it was quite a cocoon, mm. I think. I also think that there was probably a deliberate decision to make sure that these are the quotes that are the ones that make it onto the public record because these are the kinds of girls, young girls, teenagers, that she's trying to appeal to. Yeah, well, she's probably also being a savvy businesswoman. Like, yes, both things can be true. Maybe she is slightly more innocent, more goody two-shoes than the average 19-year-old. We've also had from her own peers say that she is a super savvy, super switched on woman. Maybe she just knew, I don't care if the Rolling Stone profile piece makes me seem like I'm younger than I am. That's ideal. I want to be appealing to 12 to 15 year olds primarily anyway. Exactly. So it does go without saying that things were going really great for Taylor in 2009. When the VMAs rolled around in November, she was even nominated for Best Video by a Female Artist for the You Belong With Me music video. Now, also nominated for that same award was, of course, Beyonce for Single Ladies. Mm, This was a huge night for 19-year-old Taylor Swift for many reasons. Not only was she nominated for the huge award against some of the most glittery pop music icons, she'd also been asked to perform You Belong With Me live at the VMAs. So she had turned up this... (laughs) As a Taylor Swift fan, this makes me roll my eyes just a little bit. She turned up to the red carpet in a glass pumpkin-shaped Cinderella coach (laughs) wearing a silver gown, which Vox explained was a deliberate reference to the fact that, and I quote, Taylor was Cinderella and the VMAs were the ball at which she would make her entry to the world of pop music. Look, 
Off the back of that Rolling Stone piece, we can't say that her publicity team was not consistent with the image that they wanted to put out into the world. Someone else who arrived at the VMAs as well was Kanye West. He, in comparison to Taylor Swift, arrived on the red carpet clutching a bottle of Hennessy that he was (laughs) passing around to other people. Vox did speculate that he was drunk on the red carpet. We don't know if he was drunk or not. All we can say for sure is that he was drinking Mm. and that bottle of Hennessy, the amount within the bottle was kind of decreasing. (laughs) As he was walking the red carpet. You should be a politician, I swear to God. Taylor ended up winning that big award. She got up on stage and said, thank you so much. I've always dreamed about what it would be like to win one of these someday, but I never thought it actually would have happened. I sing country music. So thank you so much for giving me the chance to win a VMA award. I, at that point where she goes to start a new sentence, she's interrupted. Yo, Taylor. I'm really happy for you. I'm going to let you finish. But Beyonce had one of the best videos of all time. One of the best videos of all time. So as I'm sure many people can remember, the camera while Kanye is on stage cuts to Beyonce staring at him with her mouth agape in what looks like horror. Mm. Here is a passage from Vox explaining what happened next. The crowd began to boo. Kanye shrugged and handed the microphone back to Taylor as he walked off stage. And Taylor took it and stood silently, lips pursed and body tense as the audience erupted into chaos, some booing Kanye and some standing on their seats to give Taylor a standing ovation. Then MTV cut to a pre-recorded segment between Eminem and Tracy Morgan. Do you remember recently when Taylor Swift has reflected on this incident and she's spoken a lot about not realising when she was on that stage that the people booing weren't booing her for so long or at least in the immediate aftermath of that Mm. incident? She was so shook, literally shook on that stage because she thought people were booing her. Yeah, which you can understand how that would happen. There's so much chaos going on. You're in such shock. You can hear this kind of pandemonium in the audience below. And all you know is that it's a negative response, whether people are booing the fact that you won the award instead of Beyonce and booing the decision to give that to you or booing Kanye West for making the decision to interrupt you. It would be an incredibly confusing time. It's also important to know she didn't get to give her speech. Like she began by saying one sentence, she was cut off, this chaos erupts, and then all of a sudden they're cutting to a pre-recorded segment and she's kind of awkwardly ushered off the stage. According to Vox, one of the producers quietly told Beyonce that she was, wink, wink, about to be up on the stage again soon. So Beyonce was nominated for and ended up winning Best Overall Music Video of the Year. So a bigger reward than what Taylor won. When Beyonce got that accolade, instead of giving an acceptance speech herself, she graciously invited Taylor Swift on stage to have, and I quote, her moment. Yeah, I mean, Beyonce will always be the queen in so many A ways. hero. <laughs> A total hero. Like, she seems like an incredibly gracious human. Later that night... Kanye posted a pretty bad apology to Taylor and her fans on his blog. <laughs> his blog. He, this is, I actually laughed quite a lot when I reread this. <laughs> on the one hand, he was saying he was so sorry to Taylor Swift and her fans and her mom, <laughs> but defended himself saying Beyonce's video was the best of this decade. He then promised to apologize to Taylor 
tomorrow. <laughs> I just want to hone in for a second, if I may, on that initial apology to Taylor Swift, her fans and her mum and in that order. It is so horrendously patronising yeah. to assume that Taylor Swift can't stand on her own two feet without her mother there. <laughs> People were going understandably nuts for this pop culture moment. Twitter absolutely blew up with angry posts directed towards Kanye. A video leaked of the then President Barack Obama saying that the young lady Taylor seemed like a perfectly nice person whilst Kanye looked like, and I quote, a jackass. <laughs> nice American accent there too. According to the New Yorker, Kanye apologised to Taylor privately and actually ended up taking a year off to recover from the incident. I didn't realise that. No. When I read that in The New Yorker, I was like, yeah, I guess he really did kind of go to ground, but I didn't realise that he had to take a whole year off really anything for his brand to recover. It also drew a lot of attention to Taylor Swift. Now, Taylor Swift was clearly a big artist in her own right because she was winning a VMA at this point. But the moment itself garnered such international attention when you've got Barack Obama talking about you, it reached and divided people that may not have previously known who she was. Yeah. In a professional sense, we know that this probably boosted Taylor Swift's career. But in a personal sense, I don't think any of us can no sit way. here and act like this wouldn't have a real impact on you in front of millions of people. Like, absolutely, there was a personal toll that Taylor Swift paid for this incident. And I think a lot of people were very understanding about her talking about that and giving quotes about that in interviews for a year. I think where the sentiment was split or started to turn was the next year. So what happened to the year after? Well, Taylor Swift wrote a new song called Innocent and decided to play it at the next year's VMAs. The song was addressed to Kanye with lines like, 32 and still growing up now, who you are is not what you did, you're still an innocent. While some people praised the song, others did not like it at all. Yolanda Sanguini wrote for Essence that the song was patronising. She also criticised Taylor for playing into the victim-villain dynamic to her own advantage, writing, Hadn't she said she was over the whole debacle? If only West and Swift wouldn't have played so perfectly into their roles, the innocent white girl and the supposedly menacing black man. Like it or not, pop culture is a reflection of our reality and cannot be dismissed as having no meaning or value. I think we would all agree that that's an absolutely important layer here. I think we have two key layers when it comes to an older man feeling like he can interrupt a teenage woman in front of millions of people. There's a layer of sexism probably there. And then when we have Taylor Swift writing this song, Innocent, there's a layer of race. We have a white woman depicting a black man as a villain. Yeah, exactly. And I think with those things in mind, it becomes a far more complicated story, a far more layered story than meets the eye. I think it was also positioning herself as the one who could kind of like redeem Kanye West was a bit too far. Like speak about your own experience, speak about how you feel, but to say who you are is not what you did, you're still an innocent is a little bit cringe. There was more negative press about this song from NPR. Under an article titled Taylor Swift Sings That Kanye Can Get to Heaven Despite Interrupting Her, journalist Linda Holmes wrote, On last night's VMAs, the saga continued as Taylor Swift, previously perched on at least something of a high ground, leaped enthusiastically from that high ground into a morris of overclocked and passive-aggressive self-pity. Overall, she's very earnest about letting Kanye's soul live. 
Another fun fact here, very quickly, a 2012 profile in Rolling Stone revealed that Taylor Swift actually had a framed photograph of the incident above the fireplace in her Nashville home with the caption, life is full of little interruptions. The VMA award itself sat next to it. She told Rolling Stone that Kanye interrupted her, helped her realise nothing is going to go exactly the way you plan it. Just because you make a good plan doesn't mean that's what's going to happen. VMAs aside, the fearless era, which was from 2008 to 2010, was incredibly successful for Taylor Swift. She went on to win Album of the Year at the CMAs, so the Country Music Association Awards, and the Academy of Country Music Awards. She won Artist of the Year at the AMAs. She won Album of the Year at the 2010 Grammys for Fearless. She was the youngest ever person to receive a Grammy for Album of the Year until Billie Eilish went on to win it aged 18. It is so stupidly impressive, isn't it, mm. to win a Grammy for an album that young. It's just so much fame so early as well. Yeah, so much success so, so, so young. So much. Now, on October 25, 2010, Taylor Swift aged 20. 20 released her third studio album, three albums by the time she's 20, called Speak Now. She wrote the entire album by herself while on the Fearless tour. Each song was designed to be kind of like a confession of sorts that she never had the chance to say to the person they were about. It became her most successful album to date. Imagine coming off all that success and being like, and I'm going to beat it. Yeah, it's the Grammy for Album of the Year yeah. and wait, I'm going to write a better one. It debuted at number one on the Billboard 200 chart and sold a million copies in its first week. <laughs> oh, my God. Forbes ranked Taylor as 2010's seventh biggest earning celebrity with an annual income of $45 million. This is a 20-year-old, just a reminder, a 20-year-old that we're speaking about. In Speak Now, Taylor showed that she was also not afraid to delve into her personal life, specifically when it came to the guys she was dating. Between 2008 and 2010, Taylor famously dated guys like Lucas Till, that was her co-star from the You Belong With Me music video. She also dated Twilight actor Taylor Lautner and John Mayer. She had just started dating actor Jake Gyllenhaal in October 2010 when Speak Now came out. Rest in peace, Jake Gyllenhaal. (laughs) A lot of the songs on Speak Now could be traced back to the boyfriends that Taylor dated in the lead up to the album. Some of them apparently weren't too happy about being name dropped or at least sort of hinted to. (laughs) I understand that, but also... Screw it. Like, don't date a musician then. (laughs) For example, Dear John... (laughs) was pretty clearly about John Mayer. Taylor kind of dragged John in this song. Kind of. Yeah, well, he he dragged John. She dragged John for how he treated her and nodded to the fact that he was almost 13 years older than her when they dated. This was one of the lines. Dear John, I see it all now that you're gone. Don't you think I was too young to be messed with? The girl in the dress cried the whole way home. I should have known. It's very hard to read lyrics out without singing them. (laughs) John Mayer later told Rolling Stone that he was, and I quote, really humiliated by the song. Grow up, John. Fuck off, John Mayer. He said, it made me feel terrible because I didn't deserve it. I'm pretty (laughs) good at taking accountability now, and I never did anything to deserve that. It was a really lousy thing. Thing for her to do, as if he has never written a song about someone he dated or broke up with. Also, a 13-year age gap. I'm a bit off him even dating a teenager in the first place. Well, he was in his 30s. I was going to say, what, what do you mean you've not done anything wrong? She's writing about an age gap 
a power dynamic mm. that is clearly there. Like you can't argue with that. <laughs> Ask by the New Yorker how she felt about ex-boyfriends getting upset that she was writing about their relationships in songs. She said, in every one of my relationships, I've been good and fair. What happens after they take that for granted is not my problem. Chances are if they're being written about in a way they don't like, it's because they hurt me really badly. Telling a story only works if you have characters in it. I don't think it's mean. I think it's mean to hurt someone in a relationship. I love how like steadfast and strong she was in that moment. In other songs, Taylor took responsibility for the way that she messed up and she hurt people in relationships, particularly in the song Back to December, where she sang about how much she regretted breaking up with her boyfriend, Taylor Lautner. We expect it's Taylor Lautner. I think we're all pretty sure when the timelines and the lyrics match up. Another song, The Story of Us, was believed to be about an awkward run-in she had with Taylor Lautner at an award show. Yeah, even Joe Jonas got a mention on Speak Now. Most people believed that Better Than Revenge was about Camilla Bell, the actress Joe started dating shortly after leaving Taylor in 2008. Now, lyrics included, she's not a saint. No, she's not what you think. She's an actress. Whoa. She's an actress. Whoa. Uh, she's... <laughs> she's... She's an actress. Whoa. She's. <laughs> it's how, how do you say? Just, just go past the whoa. Oh, sorry. Okay. She's an actress. She's better known for the things that she does on the mattress. Now, Ooh. at the point of release, fans did love this song, but we will talk a little bit later about how that adoration came crashing down mm. when maybe her fans got old enough to really think critically about the lyrics in that song. Yeah, and slut-shaming wasn't so easily permissible anymore. As The New Yorker wrote in 2011, Taylor's decision and ability to write about her personal life was not just an artistic choice, it was also a really clever marketing choice. As they observed in that piece, the subject of the songs, it becomes clear, is not really men. It's more about the love affair between Swift and her audience. At a concert in Detroit, Taylor said, you know when you know someone really well and they can finish your sentences? I'm curious to know what it would be like to have 50,000 people finish my sentences. This time, the Speak Now era, was also when Taylor began dropping Easter eggs for her community to find. Now, this is part of Taylor's appeal and allure and her brand that is so well known in 2021. It's interesting that this began a decade prior in the notes of her albums, in her song lists, Taylor would leave numbers and codes for her fans to pour over. She also began writing the number 13 on her hand in Sharpie at every concert. From there on, the number 13 started popping up in so many various ways in so many places that the most loyal Taylor Swift fans, the most adoring people in her community, were almost in on an inside joke. It was like a wink to each other that, yes, there are Taylor Swift fans, but we're the real fans because we know exactly what she's talking about and she has a secret way to communicate with us. It's really clever. It's like a really clever and easy way to make people feel special. Mm. As The New Yorker put it, Swift's ability to hold her audience's interest reflects in part a keen understanding of what fuels fan obsession in the first place, a desire for intimacy between singer and listener. What was also really interesting from interviews that Taylor was doing around this time was just how terrified she appeared of losing everything, the fame, the fans and her reputation. In 2011, she told The New Yorker that she did worry incessantly 
about peaking too early in her career. She said, I've been watching behind the music since I was five and I became fascinated by career trajectories. Like this artist peaked on their second album, this artist peaked on their third album, this artist peaked with every album. These are singles artists, these are album artists. And sometimes I stress myself out wondering what my trajectory is. Like if I sleep in and wake up at 2pm because I'm so tired from the night before, sometimes I'll beat myself up because what if I was supposed to wake up earlier that day and write a song. Be pretty exhausting to live with that kind of pressure on yourself. In 2012, Rolling Stone wrote that Taylor was also coming to grips with, and I quote, the fact that her days of exclusively good press are over. Taylor told the magazine, I just got to take it day by day. I don't think anyone is ever truly viewed as only one thing, as only good, as only well behaved, as only respectful. In the beginning, when there would be a tiny news story about something that wasn't true, I thought that meant my fans weren't going to show up to my next concert. But now, knock on wood, where's wood? I need to knock on wood. I feel like my fans have my back and I have theirs. Taylor also went on to say that she can't be the good guy in every story and she knows that. She said, it's just part of the dynamics of a good story. Everybody is a complicated character. She also said in that interview, I am always terrified that something's going to happen and I'm not going to be able to do this anymore and it's all going to end in one day. Part of the fear comes from loving this so much and not wanting to lose it. Now, these statements at this point in her life, she was 22, she was on the cusp of releasing her fourth album, Red, were almost prophetic because we know that in a matter of years, Taylor did lose fans, she did lose some fame, but I think most importantly... She lost a real sizable chunk of her reputation. This episode of Scandal was about the rise of Taylor Swift. The next one, Michelle, is going to be about the fall. It's going to be about the fall. And guys, we cannot wait for you to join us for episode two. Until then, come and follow us over on Instagram. We're at Shameless Podcast. We will be sharing all of the delightful Taylor Swift content, the throwback photos over on Instagram. We are also on TikTok at Shameless underscore podcast if you want to follow us there. A massive, massive thank you to our wonderful researcher, Justine Landers-Hanley. You've put in such good work on these Taylor Swift episodes and we can't wait to bring more of them to life. We are so excited for this next episode. Guys, we will be back in your ears on Thursday for another wrap in the week that was in pop culture. Bye. Bye. 